topic of today's sermon. Let me begin with this. Um, Many of you see my children often uh, distracted and distractible during the beginning of service because we often sit up at the front. And one of the things I both dread the most and enjoy the most is when Madeline, my oldest, comes to me while I'm cooking, right? Because you know what it's like to cook dinner. You, you rush home. I get home about 5.50, and the goal is to get dinner on the table by 6.30. And somewhere in that half hour, Jen may appear. And so you're desperately cooking, and then Mado will come up to you and go, Papa, I want to help you. Now, those of you who've had little children offer to help you cook know that in terms of efficiency, in terms of speed, in terms of palatability later, you would be better off if they would go watch a video, which is one of the reasons we bought a TV after our children were born. And you know it will not speed you up. It will, not make things, it will make things messier. It will lengthen things. It will be more distracting. And yet there's few things I enjoy more than when my daughter comes and says, Papa, can I help you? Right? Because there's something just delightful and pleasing about saying, okay, more important than getting it done is doing it with somebody that I love. More important than being efficient or even delightful in its final product is the chance to work with my daughter so that I use all of her wild abandon and stirring and tossing and cleaning and direct that to accomplishing a goal together where she actually participates in what I'm doing. And then she's beginning to discover the things that I love. And together we're going to make something that will be good for the entire family. That's why I'm convinced God looks at us the same way. I wonder if... at Church, you ever think, does this make a difference to anybody but myself? Does God really want to use me in evangelism or witness, in discipling someone else and praying for other people? I think actually God approaches us much like I approach Madeline when she offers to um, help me cook. God says, no, your prayers, your worship, your evangelism, your discipling, don't, doesn't make my process of redeeming the world any faster, any prettier, any quicker, any more efficient, but I love it when you do it with me. And why is that the case? It's because of what we believe about what God is doing in the process of working with us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll begin um, and talk about what do we believe about what the nature of humanity is really like. Father, open our ears, we pray, so that you would, we would hear your voice, that we'd be grounded in your word, and we would know who we are so that we can appropriately understand what you are doing, how we can participate in who you are. And then together, um, we'd accomplish your purposes in this world. Amen. My understanding is that you all are working through your core beliefs, your uh, basis of faith for the church. And I think this is a wonderful thing because uh, most people would argue it doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, um, I, I recently picked up a new role with InterVarsity where I'm our official representative on all issues where universities are challenging our right to be on campus. Uh, there have been 41 universities that have challenged InterVarsity's presence on campus in the last two years, and at Vanderbilt University this spring, they finally kicked us off campus because they said it's discriminatory for your group to require Christian student leaders to actually be Christians. They said, you know, uh, even a, a doctrinal basis as minimal as your student leaders must affirm that Jesus Christ is, they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, is far too discriminatory 
uh, here at our University at Vanderbilt. And so what they said is you can have any election process you want, which we think will weed out all the people. But in the end, what we responded was, you're essentially saying we can't pretend like our beliefs matter. But they do matter. And so the fact that you're trying to figure out and reaffirm for yourselves what do we believe and why do we believe it is critical. And today we're looking at humanity. What does it mean that people are created in God's image? And what's the good news and bad news about being human? And I know you'll explore some more of the bad news later, so we'll land a little harder on the good news of what it means to be human today. Um, I want to start with a quote, which I think frames the issue pretty well. Richard Holloway, who's the Anglican Bishop of Edinburgh, once said, this is my dilemma. I am dust and ashes, frail and wayward, a predetermined set of behavioral responses, riddled with fears, beset with needs, the quintessence of dust, and unto dust I shall return. But there's something else in me. Dust I may be, but troubled dust, dust that dreams. Dust that has strange premonitions of transfiguration, of a glory in store, a destiny prepared, an inheritance that will one day be my own. So my life is stretched out in a painful dialectic between dust and glory, between weakness and transfiguration. I am a riddle to myself, an exasperating enigma, the strange duality of dust and glory. And I think it's, it's this great exposition of what's going on in Psalm 8 which we had read for us earlier today, begins with this, this note of worship, right? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it ends with that. And captured between the worship of who God is, both at the beginning and at the end, in the middle, the psalmist focuses on what does it mean to be human? And he says, look, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? What's humanity that you are mindful of us? the son of man that you care for us. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. Consider what it's like, right? In some ways, the, the psalmist seems to be going, Lord, you're so amazing. And when I think about the vastness of the heavens that you've made, not just our world, not just our solar system, our galaxy, the constellation of galaxies that we're part of, not even the far edges of the universe. When I think of that, I think of, what are we, these mud creatures that seem to be so loved by God? Think about the incredibly thin margins that we live upon here on this earth. Sterling, just the faintest edge of the inhabitable part of this world. When the vast majority of the world is uninhabitable, uninhabitable to us, if the orb just tilted a couple degrees in either direction, conditions would begin to evaporate on which we could live. If we were just a few hundred miles on either side of where we actually orbit the world, we wouldn't exist. With incredible precision, God has created an environment for us. And even more than that, the psalmist seems to say, it's not just that we exist in this vast space that we can imagine, and you and I can imagine it far more than the early Israelites could have. It's that you actually care for us, you are mindful of us, you remember us, and we are in your heart and in your presence. You care for us and provide for us so richly and so lovingly. Part of the implication for us, I think, as you look at the vastness of creation and then our own existence and our own privileged status before God, is that that's one of the reasons that we as people should be incredibly humble for all that we could achieve. In a world which is highly focused on celebrating our achievements, right? If you watch the news, if you watch any program on TV, if you talk to other people, what we always do is we're always talking about all that we've achieved, all that we've accomplished. We continually relive 
the Tower of Babel experience. Let's build something for ourselves to make a name for ourselves. The vastness of the universe reminds us we're almost nothing. And yet God keeps saying, you're everything to me. That's a cause of humility. The psalmist goes on to say, right, um, you've made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. One tra- several translations talk about you've made us a little lower, just a little under you yourself. And you've crowned us with glory and honor, the language that we often use of God himself, right? Partially what we're asserting at that point, the psalmist is saying, you were created in God's image. You, you're, when I look at you, I see something of what God is like. And our doctrinal basis here at CBC actually refers explicitly to that. We are created in God's image, and it's hearkening back, obviously, to the language of Genesis 1, where when God created man and woman together, he says, um, let them be made in my image. And in his image, he created them. Men and women, he created them in his image. What does it mean to be created in God's image? Um, it's not so a physical resemblance that God has our hairstyle, our particular nose, mouth, or a physical body like us. That would be a little too literal, I think. Um, instead, when you look at what the image of God, the language that's used of it uh, throughout the ancient Middle East at the time, um, it was primarily used for these statues that were made of the king. And these statues tended to be, um, when a king would come into power, particularly when he would conquer a new country, he would establish an image of himself at the boundaries of his kingdom to demonstrate that up to this place, his presence could be seen. His power and authority could be felt. He was literally there, even if physically he was off in the capital, because his image was there, he was there himself. Literally what Jesus, God seems to be saying in Genesis 1 and reiterating here, I think, in Psalm 8 is wherever you are and whatever you do, if you were made in God's image, your presence in that place, your power in that place, your accomplishments in that place are designed to allow that part of creation, that part of the world to know that God is there. You are a sign and symbol that God actually reigns and he rules. Wherever you are, you're mirroring his presence so that something of his glory is demonstrated, something of his authority is made known, something about his redeeming, redemptive presence is actually felt. To be made in God's image is to actually assert that um, we're God's ambassadors. When we speak, it's as if God is speaking in that place. It's like, um, to use older language, you're his viceroy. Wherever you are, he doesn't need to be because he's accomplishing his purposes through you. What might that look like? Let me suggest two ideas. The first is, um, if wherever we go, we're demonstrating God's presence, it means in part we're confronting all the false idols and false images that would want to demonstrate their authority in the world. I brought a group of people um, of my staff down in New York City for a series of meetings, and one of the things that they noticed immediately was Um, As we were debriefing their day there, they said, I've never seen so many advertisements in my entire life. Like every surface of New York City is covered with a billboard, even the stairs on the subway and those little spaces as you're going up, every one of those, they said, had some little advertisement to tell me about things. They said, I know more about the fall TV schedule now just by looking at the advertisements on the subway than I could possibly ever figure out in my home itself. And you know that's true, isn't it, right? You turn on your computer and immediately through the power of Google and other things, you're given ads which appeal to you. 
right? Facebook, the right-hand side of your screen, is cluttered with that kind of thing. You drive down the street, there are billboards, you listen to the radio, they're immediately advertising. Everywhere there are images about the ideal life that you should have. If you just use this product, you'd be sweeter smelling, more attractive, and more popular, right? If you just had this one drug, your entire life would burst into, um, they always seem to involve butterflies floating around um, in an open country field. Um, if you invest in this way, not only will you be financially secure now, but you can be older and your grandchildren will frolic with you on the beach that you must own. Uh, whatever it is, there are these alternative images of what life is supposed to be like. Wherever we go, if you are made in God's image, in part, what you do by your choices and by what you say is designed to confront those, to deny them sovereignty, and to begin retell the story of the world in God's ways. This may, this may be a weak example, but when Jennifer and I were getting married, um, we did what most couples did. We went and registered uh, for stuff. Um, and we were encouraged to. Several Christian friends said, if you don't register, people will buy you whatever they want, and you will end up with a complete mishmash of things that are largely unreturnable. And what one of them said is, do me a favor. I don't want to think so hard about your wedding gift. I want to enjoy you as people, so just tell me what you would like me to buy. I'll go buy it, and we can be done with this thing. Well, wanting to serve our friends, we went and registered. So we went to Bed Bath & Beyond as the first place. And um, it was interesting. They handed us the little ray gun, which you used to scan what you would like, which both Jen and I really enjoyed, and so they gave us two of them so we could each have one. We, we thought we were going to have between 500 and 600 guests, so we really thought, okay, we're going to have to register for a lot of stuff. But it's interesting, as they handed us the gun and kind of a list of things you might want to think about, they said, the woman's just looking at us with completely sincere, register for everything you want. It's your special day. You deserve it. Your friends want you to have this. I felt like I was teetering on the edge at a moment of truth. Right? She was presenting an image of what hum my human life should be like. Fill yourself with stuff. It's good stuff. It's inexpensive stuff that people want you to have and you deserve. Go just take it. Zap! It could be yours. <laughs> and I looked at her and I just said, mentally, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> but I thought that was rude to somebody who uh, was working at Better Bethany. And all I said to her was, um, I don't actually believe that's true. We don't need all the stuff. And our friends don't necessarily need to give it to us, and certainly I don't deserve this. But we will register. <laughs> and we registered for a lot. But it was that insidious and that small. You deserve it. Just take it. People want to give it to you. And if I'm an image bearer of God, right, if I'm going to mirror his presence, what I have to say is humanity won't live by bread alone. I will not be summed up by the amount of stuff I can lead my children. I am made in the image of God. I'm fed by his word. I'm sustained by his power and his presence. That's what life is about, right? Wherever you are, you are God's image bearers, and you're declaring to the world, God is, it is the Lord who is God. The other thing, right, is that it's through humanity that God seems to act in creation, and the rest of the psalm, I think reflecting on Genesis 2 and 1, says, You made him over the ruler, the ruler of the work of your hands and put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all that swims in the paths of the sea. That 
Uh, when God created humanity, he made us stewards of our, over all of creation, right? Fill the earth, he said, and subdue it. Build and create, just like I created. And part of what you see in Genesis 1 is God creates these environments, and then he begins to fill them, right? So he separates out environments, light from dark, the sky from everything below, water from the land. And then on the following three days of creation, he goes, look, I separated out light from dark, so we'll make the sun and the moon and the stars to fill the lightness and the dark. Uh, we'll, I'll fill uh, the waters of the sea with fish, and I'm going to fill the, uh, the air with birds. I'm going to fill the land as I make them. And then he says, look, I just got started. I only had seven days, and I, I managed to get this far. Now it's your turn. Finish it. Where there's empty stuff, begin to fill it with things of beauty and of harmony, of delight, just like I made the world. Um, use the creativity and the minds that I gave you. And I didn't do buildings because, you know, there's only seven days. You go make buildings, create cities for yourselves, develop language and culture, share food with one another, use language to make things of beauty, use your hands to make things of art, create dwellings for yourselves. I got it started, now it's yours. And the psalmist seems to say, look, everything was put under our dominion. Part of what's important in knowing about this if you're creating God's image, it means developing and not exploiting the resources that God entrusted to us. That at some point, God will look back to us and say, I gave you the world. What did you do with it? I gave you this beautiful environment. How did you improve it? How did you use it to allow human beings to flourish to the glory of God? Or how did you destroy it? How did you mangle it? Now, I do not believe... I'm convinced this doesn't mean we should just be living in kind of an environmental wilderness. You know, and the goal being if we could each find our own mountain with a small carbon footprint off in the home, that, that, that would be perfect. I think actually God desi desired us to build much of what we have. I think actually when you look at New York City at night, <clears throat> when you can't see all the garbage, <laughs> particularly from a slightly higher elevation, and it's laid out before them, before me. Um, I used to live in Jersey City so I could watch it over the Palisades of North Jersey. My heart would just be filled with worship, um, not over humanity's achievement, but how, like when you start thinking of the complexity of what exists so that city can exist, the technology, the skills, the labor, the people, I, I often think of this psalm when I would look at New York City at night. Um, what, is human, what are human beings that you're mindful of them? the son of man that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory. And that part of, I think, the best of what we offer God sometimes is, look at our ability to have millions of people live in close proximity to create some of the greatest works of art, the deepest thought, the greatest innovations ever. We'll speak of the sin in a second. Um, for all of us, I want to suggest... Exercising dominion over the world and manifesting the presence of God means that everything that we do offers us a chance to demonstrate his glory and create a little dignity. So whether it's something as simple as cooking a meal, which is satisfying, both in terms of it nourishes our bodies as well as our souls because it was made with love and there was a little care in its presentation, because it was both tasty and nourishing to our bodies, because it was well put together, that glorifies God. You're exercising dominion over that little bowl of salad, that pot of soup that you've made, that roast that you've uh, carefully laid out for your family, or whatever it is that you eat. If you're a small child, it means coloring in your coloring book with delight and glory because God's made you creative. 
and expressive, and you're actually making something, which is delightful. If you're a student and you still haven't finished with finals yet, Lord have mercy on you. <laughs> but right, the entire act of studying, I loved finals week because all of a sudden I thought, I, I went to quarter schools, 10 weeks of learning have all come to this, which often depressed me, then I had to repent. But then, as I studied, I thought, everything I want to learn has now come into focus. And when I write that paper, I can write to the glory of God. Not for the sake of a grade, but because God gave me a mind. He's allowing me to synthesize information that I now have. And when I turn in that paper, it's not going to be to please the professor. It's going to go because, Lord, this is my best expression of bringing creativity and a little structure into a chaotic world. Right? When you go to work, whatever you do, whether you feel like you're just pushing papers or you're extending God's hailing hand in the world because you're a doctor, or a teacher, or a social worker. Whatever you do, wherever you are, you have an opportunity to go, this is what God created me to do. And I can do it for his glory. And he says, that's how I'm extending my kingdom. Not just by winning people to faith, but inch by square inch, saying this belongs to me. Maybe the easiest way to sum it up, there was a woman who lived on the prairies of the United States back in 1870s, and she had a journal. And in her journal, she once described one of her quilts, and she says, I make my quilts warm to keep my family from freezing, and I make them beautiful to keep my heart from breaking. And I think she did it for the glory of God. And God was glorified even in the humble act of hand-sewing a quilt that would physically keep her family warm and would enrich their souls because of its beauty. That's who we were created to be in the image of God. His image bearers confronting the evil idolatries of the world and then extending his power and his presence wherever we're at. The challenge is, and we're going to look really briefly at Ephesians 2, because I think we'll come back to it as we go through this series together, is that that isn't the total story of who we are and what we're about. In Ephesians 2, Paul reflects on how far human beings are from living that out. And so I'll read it reasonably quickly, and you'll begin to see where it goes. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, uh, beginning in verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Really quickly, what Paul seems to be saying is, you're zombies. God created you to rule the world with him, to manifest his image, and you're just terrible flesh-eating zombies. Um, and the way he described it right, you're dead, and you just don't even know you're dead. John Stott, um, the British pastor and theologian, once wrote, Human beings are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of the Spirit toward him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. 
They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. And we walk around that way, following the powers of the prince of the darkness of the air. We literally become Satan followers, not necessarily worshiping him, but doing the things that he invites the world to do. Worshiping him rather than the Lord. Choosing for ourselves what is right rather than listening to the Lord. Glorifying ourselves rather than God. And, he, and Paul describes it as we're captive um, to our own sinful desires and thoughts in verse 3, right? All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. We're less than human, Paul seems to be saying here. Reduced to people of impulse. When we're reduced to following our cravings and our desires, we're no more than animals. Responding by reflex to what uh, we feel like we're jerked around. Responding to the stimuli and enticements and opportunities before us rather than being rational and responsible for who we are. Flesh-eating zombies walking around, calling out for brains. Quite a contrast from cellmate. And Paul says, as a result of that, we're objects of God's wrath. At the second half of uh, verse 3. Now, what's God's wrath? Um, I get angry. Uh, Usually, it involves my children because they're slowing me down, because they're in the way, because they're whining. Um, It's quite fun right now. I can ask Mado, are you whining? She'll be like, yes. Because we, we've worked on that really hard. Um, and, but usually it's because I'm frustrated, because I'm irritated, because my agenda is being bothered. <clears throat> God's wrath isn't quite like this, and we'll be talking about that in a, one of the coming weeks. But God's wrath is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve to condemn it. Because it destroys what he wants, which is for humanity to be fully developed into his image so that we reflect his glory throughout the world. I want to suggest if really the world is far less than God intended, to use the image of a zombie, the proper goal isn't to destroy the zombie, it's to redeem it. This is obviously where the zombie analogy breaks down. (laughs) But I want to suggest that as you as a church begin to focus outward, um, <clears throat> through your vision process as well as through the activities you're doing, whether with VBS or Scatter Church or thinking about how you're going to reach out evangelistically, we must do it because the people who are around us, as delightful and wonderful and noble as they may be, in the end, if they do not yet know Jesus, are no better than zombies walking around. Unable to see clearly, unable to respond clearly, unable to make the kind of choices that, if redeemed by the Holy Spirit, freed from the power of sin, they would otherwise make for their own good and for their delight. That we do not witness out of a deep sense of guilt or obligation, but out of a desperation to free people from captivity, to release them from chains, to allow them to move from death to life, to move from impaired capacities to full capacity and responsibility and joy. And we do it not with a level of arrogance, but with incredible humility. You'll notice twice in this passage, Paul goes, all of us lived among them, and like the rest, we were just like this at one time. We don't move from like, having been born in perfection and continued in perfection ever since childhood into glorious adulthood where I have everything together, come be more like me, right? How obnoxious. Or to use a generic cliche, but also true, we come as people who actually have the cure to people who still need it and offer a great testimonial of why the cure was effective. And we invite them, please, for your own sake, take the medicine and be restored to your right mind. 
God intended us for this glorious possibility to be created in his image. It's been completely twisted by the fall. But look to where it presses towards, again, in verses uh, 4 through 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Every conversion is a resurrection. And he offers us the same resurrection power that he worked in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not by yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We've been made alive, and then we've been raised up and seated with Christ. We're united with him as soon as we come to know him. And God says, literally, that throne that Jesus is sitting on, somehow it's really big. You all have a space there. The great thing is, if we are created in God's image, then he invites us to be his kingdom and his priests. To serve him, it's a theme repeated through the Old and the New Testament. What does it mean to be seated with Christ? It means if Christ is our intercessor, then we have the opportunity to intercede as well. I just preached recently to a group of students, and it was the um, story of the paralytic being lowered down from um, the ceiling. And you're all familiar, right? Jesus is teaching um, at a home, and all of a sudden, like, dirt starts to fall. And then he sees hands kind of peel through the ceiling, because right, they were dirt and waddle ceilings, and... I'm sure what Jesus was thinking of, what are you doing? I'm teaching, and who raised you? Right? Like, what is this? And his, these friends lower a paralytic on the mat. And what's amazing to me about that story is that Jesus doesn't comment on the faith of the paralytic. He doesn't go, oh, wow, you had a lot of faith that you let your friends lower you from a mat from the ceiling and being paralyzed and all. Like, I wouldn't do it. I, I like my friends. I don't trust them to do that kind of thing. <laughs> he doesn't comment on their, what he does, Jesus does. He goes, seeing the faith of the man's friends. He turns the paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. Think of the implications of that for a moment. What happens if, in terms of the salvation of the people around us, God, isn't, God is equally concerned about the level of our faith in our prayers and activities to bring them to Jesus as he is about their own faith? That's horrifying, isn't it? At least it is to me. I have to pray more. But if we reign with him, we intercede with him, and perhaps what Jesus is actually saying to us is not, so okay, I'd just like to guilt you into praying more effectively, because if you don't pray, they'll never come to know me. What he's really saying is, I love it when you pray for the salvation of your friends and family. And when I see your faith, it makes me want to do something. I love it when you're participating with me in the salvation of the world. So when you open your mouth and you kind of uncomfortably go, you know, I was at church and I had this great conversation over coffee with someone. And it just reminds me of something we were talking about here at work. It's not an abrupt, awkward intrusion in the conversation. It's actually God saying, ah, you open the door, the Holy Spirit's going to move in. When you make that phone call and say, hey, would your children like to come to VBS with my kids? They're just going to have a lot of fun. They'll be cared for and you can have a free afternoon glory. It's not just filling a program here, offering a little bit of free time to a harried parent. It's actually God saying, through this as I'm going to reach out, that family's going to come to know me because you had the faith to open your mouth, dial the phone, and make the invitation. 
You see, part of what the end of this passage seems to say is all that was lost in the fall is going to be redeemed by Jesus Christ and renewed in the future for us. We live for the praise of his glory, Paul says. The substance of our worship is both the grace of God in redeeming us when we were still in rebellion against him and the invitation by him at the end of this passage of verse 10 to actually accomplish things that he set out before us. It's as if God at the very beginning of time said, I know the fall is going to exist, but for each one of you I have a plan and this is what you're going to do to help me redeem the world at the end. So by, in some ways, for every sin that you've committed that I need to forgive you of, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do one great thing that will reverse its effects and accomplish redemption. That's what you're about. So we share our faith. So we do acts of service. We actually show mercy and grace to the people around us. And God says, it's exactly what I need you to do. You're, you're very competent sinners. Work at competent grace extension. And together, I'm going to cancel it out and I'm going to accomplish far more. And at the end of time, we're all going to stand together and, and God will look at us and go, what an amazing thing we did together in redeeming the world. And it's going to be exactly like when my daughter asked me to help, asked me if she could help me cook. It won't be faster than I could have done it by myself. It won't be as pretty as if I could have done it by myself. It isn't going to be as smooth as if I had done it by myself. But you know what? The greatest joy at that moment is we did it together. I love it when my daughter intrudes upon my cooking, intrudes upon me and says, Papa, can I do that with you? And I'll take it slow because I want to do it with her because I know no matter how messy she makes it, I'm actually smart enough and big enough and fast enough to take all of the mess and still turn it into what I need it to be by the end. And nobody will be any the wiser. I know by doing that, I'm actually training her up in skills that 20 years from now, she's going to stand up and go, I can make the dinner for people. And it's going to be a good dinner. And she's going to delight in it. Because I hope part of when she cooks, she thinks, I used to do this with my dad and my mom. And when I feed my own family, it's going to be because out of a long tradition of parents feeding their children that I'm stepping into. She's going to look a little bit more like an adult by the end. And I'm going to have the delight of working with her as a child. Let me end with this. The worship song that we began with, I actually asked for, um, I have to admit, Joyful, Joyful is a tune that which um, I find a little repetitive. It's not my favorite. Um, but the words themselves, I think, are fantastic in framing the thing. So let me read this as we close. God, all nature, sings thy glory, and thy works proclaim thy might. Ordered vastness in the heavens, ordered course of day and night. Beauty in the changing seasons, beauty in the storming sea. All the changing moods of nature praise the changeless trinity. Clearer still we see thy hand in man whom thou hast made for thee. Ruler of creation's glory, image of thy majesty. Music, art, the fruitful garden, all the labor of his days are the calling of his maker to the harvest feast of praise. But our sins have spoiled thine image. Nature conscious only serve as unceasing grim reminders of the wrath which we deserve. Yet thy grace and saving mercy in thy word of truth revealed claim the praise of all who know thee in the blood of Jesus sealed. God of power, glory, power, mercy, all creation praises thee. We, thy creatures, would adore thee now and through eternity. Saved to magnify thy goodness, grant us strength to do thy will with our acts and with our voices, thy commandments to fulfill. It's this great scope, right, of embedded in creation all the way to the final time when God says, ah, we're all done now. Let's play. It's a great description of what humanity is about. The song was written by David Clowney. Some of you may have heard of his father, Edmund Clowney. David wrote this when he was 14. Um, while he was at one of the university's training centers at Cedar Campus while his dad was speaking. 
may we come to know the truth as deeply as that 14-year-old. Let me pray for us. Lord, how do we sum up what does it mean to be human in 30, 35 minutes? It's impossible. It's the task to which you've called us. Um, from the moment we become aware of who we are and what we're about until um, we draw our last breath, should you give us an awareness of who we are at that moment. And so, um, Lord, may we glory in what it means to be created in your image, to be partners with you in the work of um, bringing redemption to the world. May we be humbled by the work of your spirit in our lives through Jesus Christ um, that allows us to be that participant. And then may we be totally humbled by the reality of our own sin, the dust from which we come and the dust to which we go. And then, Lord, uh, we celebrate your goodness. How is it It's so amazing that mud creatures could be so deeply loved and used by God? To you be the glory then. Amen.